Well, welcome to the new season, the fall season of Band of Brothers. We're about to launch into a series that uh, I've never done one quite like it. Uh, and I'm really excited you're going to be here with me as we go through the next 11 weeks. This is going to be a topical series. So unlike the book we just finished, Jonah, this is going to be a topical series that's going to take us from the book of Genesis, really all the way to the book of Revelation, as we study a topic that is really, I think, overlooked and underserved in the church today. And it's the kingdom of God. I've titled this one, Thy Kingdom Come. And, and it's based on a prayer that Jesus prayed, a model prayer, the Lord's Prayer. And, and it has everything to do with where we're going to be going over the next 11 weeks as we look into what is the kingdom. I've subtitled this thing, The Kingdom of God, What Jesus Meant or What Jesus Came to Do and what's the significance of it? In other words, why does it matter? What did he come to offer you and I? And why does it matter? This idea of the kingdom is something that we don't talk a lot about in the church today. We, we use the term, but we don't really unpack it very often. And, and over the, the, the last really four months, I've been reading voraciously, more than I ever have on a given topic. I've read at least 19 different books on this topic. And it really has helped me come to grips with how little I know about a topic that was near and dear to the heart of Jesus, this idea of the kingdom. And so that's what we want to do here in week one is just to unpack and kind of set the table for where we're going to be going in the weeks ahead. What did Jesus come to bring and why does it matter to you and I? One of the books I read this summer was a book written, I believe, by a secular individual. I don't think this, this lady is a believer. She may be. But it's a book called Strange Rights. And it's one of the most fascinating books I've ever read. And she says this in the book. She's really looking at the culture in which we live. And she wrote this just prior to everything that happened in 2019, 2020. And here's what she says. We don't live in a godless world. Rather, we live in a profoundly anti-institutional one where the proliferation of internet creative culture and consumer capitalism has rend have rendered us all simultaneously, now catch this, parishioner, high priest, and deity. In other words, we've taken on the role of all three. We're the parishioner in the religion of our making, she goes on to say. We're the priest, our own priest, and we've actually become our own God. That's really what our culture has produced. So we're not godless, we just have the wrong gods. She goes on to say, America is not secular, but simply spiritually self-focused. Anti-institutional, intuitional self-divinization, in other words, me becoming my own god, is at heart the natural spirituality of internet and smartphone culture. She goes on in this book to really unpack that all the ideologies and all the the, the different manifestations of politics and um, belief systems are really nothing more than manifestations of man-made religions taking on different forms with man as the God. And, and the reason I, I quote that book is because it's so pertinent to where we're going when we talk about the kingdom. See, we live in a world without a king. Well, the truth is we, we have way too many kings. We just have the wrong king. The world in which we live, everybody's trying to be king, trying to be their own sovereign. She goes on and says, they seek not salvation out there, 
In other words, they're not looking for some supernatural being. They're looking for salvation or purification down here on earth, a kingdom of heaven that can be realized fully on this earth rather than a world in a world to come. Now, here's what jumped out at me in reading this book and, and really over the last year and a half, thinking about all that's going on in our culture, politically and racially and socially, what we've done with this as believers is we've kind of taken the same mentality and we want heaven to be on earth. We want the kingdom of God to be established here and now, not in the hereafter. And so there's a lot of confusion about what did Jesus Christ come to bring? What is his kingdom? Where is his kingdom? And when is his kingdom going to show up? Are we going to usher it in? Or are we waiting for it to come? So this topic is very pertinent to where we are as a country, as a world, as we live through these very, very difficult times. It reminds me of a study we did really a, about a year and a half ago on the book of Judges, right before we went into the whole COVID pandemic. And one of the, the verses in that study that jumped out at me, and it's in there multiple times, is this one. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Now, this is at the end of the book of Judges, which is a, 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 a look at a period in the life of the Israelites where they didn't have a king. They did have a king, really. They had God as their king, but they did not recognize him as such. And so God was bringing their enemies against them to punish them. They would repent and call out to God, and then he would send a judge to deliver them, and there would be a period of peace and prosperity, and then they would cycle back again, and they would rebel against God. And so God would then bring the enemy against them, and then he would raise up another judge to save them. But the book ends with this verse. There was no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And see, that's the story. If you, if you go from Genesis all the way to Revelation, that's the story of the Bible. It's the story of there being a king, but that king being rejected. And that king is God. From Genesis all the way to Revelation. And we're going to be unpacking this in the weeks ahead this is just an introduction, but it's really the story of the Bible. It's the story of humanity, how we got to where we are, why things are the way they are in 2021 here in America and really all across the globe. See, because ultimately, if you look at the Bible as a whole, it's the story of the rule and reign of God and man's ultimate rejection of it mankind's rebellion against his rule and reign. And it doesn't take but two to three chapters in the book of Genesis before this all begins to happen. And it started with the fall. And it's still going on today. We have a king, but that king has been rejected by the majority of mankind. They don't want God as king. They want to be king or they want to establish their own kingships, whether in politics, whether in prosperity, science, military might, mankind has always been trying to find a replacement king for the one true king. So that's why we're going here. That's why we're studying this topic because I think it's incredibly relative to where we are and all that we see happening around us. It's interesting that Jesus in that model prayer that he gave to his disciples said this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, holy be your name. 
your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now he prefaced this model prayer by saying, pray in this way. This is a way in which to pray. He didn't give it to them as a prayer to repeat over and over again. It was a model prayer. It was an example of the kind of prayer. But one of the things that he placed in here was this idea of God's kingdom come. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now what's fascinating is that he wove this into his prayer that he taught to his disciples. But what did Jesus mean by this? What was the point behind all of it? What kind of kingdom was he talking about? And is it already here or is it yet to come? There's a lot of debate about this, and there's been a lot of debate about this for a long time. And we have to really come to grips with what did Jesus mean when he gave them this sample prayer? Is it a physical kingdom? In other words, is it a kingdom he came to establish on earth? Or is it totally a spiritual kingdom that's somewhere out there in the future? Or is it some combination of both? Those are the questions we want to try to answer. And then ultimately, the reason we want to answer those questions is because we have to answer the question of whether it even matters. And I believe, after all the study I've done, that it matters significantly. But we've overlooked it. We've downplayed it. We've not really thought about the kingdom very much. We don't preach about it very often. We don't teach lessons about it. And yet Jesus, if you go back and read the four Gospels, talked about it incessantly. He talked about the kingdom. He began his ministry talking about the kingdom. Here's what he said, or here's what Matthew records. From that time, from the very beginning, at his baptism, from that time, Jesus began to preach this message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He didn't say salvation. He didn't say your Messiah is here. He said the kingdom of heaven is near. That's the message John the Baptist preached. It's the message that Jesus picked up and continued. The kingdom of heaven is near. Interestingly enough, it's the same topic he discussed near the end of his life. So three and a half years later, he's still talking about this. He tells Pilate when he's standing before the Roman governor, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. So he began his ministry talking about the kingdom. And here he is at the end, standing before Pilate, just moments before he gets nailed to a Roman cross. And he's still talking about his kingdom. And that's why it's so important for us to understand what kind of kingdom he's talking about. Over in the book of Acts chapter 1, this is after Jesus dies on the cross, after He's buried, after He's resurrected, and after He ascends on high, or right before He ascends on high, He gives this message to His disciples. Listen to what He says. They had come together. They had gathered together, and Jesus is about to ascend, and they ask Him, and this is really important for us to understand, because this gives you insight into what the disciples thought about the kingdom. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They were expecting him to set up his kingdom right then, right there. It's what they had been hoping for for more than three and a half years. Ever since they started following Jesus and ever since they began to believe that he was the Messiah, they were hoping that he would set up his kingdom. And so here, right before he goes back up into heaven, they're still thinking that maybe 
This is the time. He's died. He's been buried. He's been resurrected. Now he's going to set up his earthly kingdom. But that's not what Jesus came to do. Here's what he tells them. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. See, He changes the subject in a way. He begins to talk about, no, it, I didn't come to set up my kingdom here. I didn't come to restore Israel right here, right now on this earth. What I came to do was to give you power. And earlier he had told the disciples, if I don't go, if I don't return to heaven, the Holy Spirit will not come. But if I go, you will receive the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what he's talking about. But you will receive power. See, he was letting them know that something significant was going to happen. The disciples wanted power, but they wanted political power, military power. But he's talking about a different kind of a power that they were going to receive once He left and the Holy Spirit came. And it would begin this idea of the kingdom, things beginning to change on this earth. See, Jesus always connected the kingdom with the gospel. And as modern 21st century Christians, we kind of separate the two. But Jesus tied them intimately together. And here's how He did it. We know in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, that Mark records this about Jesus. He came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Now this is important. And saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. There's that message about the kingdom. Repent and believe in the gospel. See, Jesus linked the two together. When we think about the gospel, we think about salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, by grace alone. You know, we, we think about Jesus dying on the cross for my sins, paying for my sins so that I can one day be with Him in heaven. And all of that's true. But we've taken it away from this idea of the kingdom. We also have in Luke chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus says, I must preach the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God. Not the gospel of salvation by faith in me alone. That's true, but that's not how Jesus presents it. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. See, Jesus tied the good news to the kingdom. And we've totally tied the good news to salvation. But you can't separate the two. And we shouldn't separate the two. See, all of this is long before Jesus ever talked about His pending death and resurrection. That didn't come till years later in His ministry with the disciples. See, he's talking about the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom has come because the Messiah has come. And he wanted his disciples, who were all Jews, to understand that what they were expecting is not what was happening. And in time, they would become confused by all of this. It's interesting that Jesus makes no mention of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Him alone. That would not come until Paul. And Paul's the one who would take that doctrine which we fully believe in and elaborate on it and expand on it. But Jesus was talking about the coming of the kingdom because primarily His ministry was to the Jewish people who were expecting a Messiah who would bring a kingdom. He's just trying to get them to understand that it's not what you expect. It will be totally different. And the good news is concerning that king, the coming of the king. He's here 
and the coming of his kingdom, but it's coming in a way unlike what they expected, hoped for, and desired. But it was all that God had promised. So once again, that's why this is so important for us to unpack this and begin to understand what did Jesus come to offer and why does it matter to you and I? Why did he proclaim and declare that the kingdom is at hand? Why was that important? See, what was he saying is part of what we have to understand. Who is he saying it to and how did they receive it? And as I said just a second ago, he's primarily talking to Jews. And when he used the terminology of kingdom, it meant something to them. They thought about it constantly, and they had been for centuries. The coming of the king and the establishment of the kingdom. And he was letting them know that there's going to be ramifications, long-term ramifications for this kingdom. But once again, different than what they had hoped for, different than what they had expected. And the key is, is it already here? In other words, have I come to establish it right here, right now? Or is it something that's going to happen later? Now, one of the things in reading the Gospels is it's not, not hard to find out that the disciples fully expected at some point Jesus was going to go into Jerusalem and he was going to set up his kingdom. He was going to conquer the Romans and he was going to set things right and restore Israel to their proper place in the political arena in that region. That's what they hoped for. That's what they longed for. They were expecting an earthly kingdom right here, right now. And the longer Jesus delayed, the more frustrated they became because they were hoping that it would happen soon, that he would overturn the Roman rule and reestablish Israel as a powerhouse, a force to be reckoned with in that region of the world. But is that why he came? I love this statement from Nicholas Perrin. This is one of the many books I've read over the last months. The work of understanding the kingdom of God is a holy obligation. And the more I've studied about it and the more I've read about it, the more I understand how true this statement really is. It's a holy obligation because if we don't understand the kingdom, we miss everything. We truly do. I love this from Gordon Fee. He says, you cannot know anything about Jesus, anything, if you miss the kingdom of God. You are zero on Jesus if you don't understand this term. I'm sorry to say it that strongly, but that's the great failure of evangelical Christianity. We have had Jesus without the kingdom of God and therefore have literally done Jesus in. Now those are strong words and he admits it. But they're words that we need to hear as evangelical Christians because we have really so avoided the topic of the kingdom that we've lost so much of what Jesus came to say and what Jesus came to offer. This idea of minimizing the kingdom has, I think, done damage to the church because we don't fully understand all that Jesus came to offer and the significance of it in our lives, the role it should play in my life and in your life. Your life. So when you think about Jesus, what comes to your mind? Uh, I, I did this little exercise for myself, and I wrote down the, the, the main words that came to my mind when I stop and think about Jesus, having been raised in the church, saved at the age of seven, having grown up in the church and immersed in the church, here's the things that come to mind. I think of him as my Savior. I think of him as the Son of God, the Son of Man, Messiah, uh, Redeemer, 
the Lamb of God, as some kind of a revolutionary. He's referred to oftentimes in the New Testament as a rabbi, a teacher. And all of those things are true. And they're all things that we th should think about when we think about Jesus. But do you notice what's missing? We rarely think about him as king. And if we do, it's always tied to some future event, something that happens in the book of Revelation during the end times. It's then that he will be king. But right now, we tend to think of those other words, Savior, Messiah, Redeemer, Lamb of God. And again, they're true, they're right, but we've left out something very important. And it's this idea of the king and his kingdom. Because what did Jesus come to bring? The kingdom. What was his purpose? To declare the kingdom is at hand. See, the Gospels always present Jesus as king. And it's interesting how the gospel writers each do it. They do it in a, in a different way. They're different men with different audiences and different purposes, but they always describe him as a king. Look at this from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. These men had been studying the Hebrew scriptures, the, the prophetic sayings regarding the coming Messiah, and they had determined that he had come. And they came seeking, where is this king? So that's how Matthew opens up his gospel. Here's how he ends it. And when they had crucified him, Jesus they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him. Now we're talking about not these wise men from the east, but we're talking about Roman soldiers. And over his head, Jesus, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. So it begins with a de declaration by the wise men. We have come seeking the king. It ends with Jesus hanging on, on a cross with a sign that declares his crime. He's the king. He's the king of the Jews. And all throughout the Gospels, you see these references to the kingship of Jesus, that Jesus came to be king, he was born a king, and he died a king. He's not a king yet to come, he is king. And that has huge ramifications for you and I. See, Jesus came into the world, he started his earthly ministry, declaring the arrival of the kingdom. Why? Because he's the king. He's the rightful king. That's why Mark says this, Jesus came into the Gal Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Why? Because he's here. He's alive. He's the son of God. He's the Messiah sent by God. And therefore repent and believe in the gospel, the good news about the kingdom. Now this message went over the heads of most of the people that heard it, including the disciples, for many years. They didn't quite get it. They didn't quite understand what he, uh, what he was talking about. But he's emphasizing from the get-go, what? The kingdom. The kingdom is at hand because the king is here. That phrase is so important for us to understand. It is at hand. What does that mean? Well, in the Greek, it literally means it has drawn near. The kingdom has drawn near. It's come nigh. It's joined one thing to another. And what is Jesus saying? Jesus is declaring that God, the God of the universe, the creator of all things, has invaded time and space. He's entered into 
time and space. How? He's the transcendent, unapproachable God. You can't see him with your eyes, and yet he has drawn near. Again, how? Through Jesus, through the coming of the Messiah, the Son of God has become a man. We have heard that statement made so many times that it no longer has any impact for most of us. It doesn't resonate. It's just a term we've grown so used to that it's, it's powerless. And yet think about this. God became a man. God took on human flesh. Philippians 2 tells us that though he, Jesus, was God, he didn't think of equality with God as something to be grasped, clung onto, hung onto like a dog with a rag. No, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. What a major step down, right? This was not a lateral move. This was a demotion for Jesus. For the the Son of God to take on human flesh and be born of a virgin in a basically a stable and be born as a helpless infant was a major step down. And yet, what's significant is that he invaded time and space in the body of a man, and he made the invisible God visible. For the first time, God, man could look at God and see him not as a burning bush, not as a cloud of fire or, or uh, some kind of theophany, but as a man standing in front of them, conversing with them, eating with them, ministering to them healing their diseases, God took on human flesh. I love how John puts it, no one has ever seen God, but the unique one, Jesus, who himself is God, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us in a way that God has never revealed himself before. Again, not as a vision, but as a man. God became man, 100% God, 100% man. And that's why this is so powerful and significant and we shouldn't lose sight of it. The king came to earth in the form of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God, therefore, is key to understanding the gospel of God. It's not just this rabbi who went around teaching remarkable truths and healing people with diseases and occasionally raising the dead. As magnificent as those things are, this was the king coming to rule and reign. And yet, does he in our lives? We know he doesn't reign in the world because the world doesn't see him as king, but we should as his children, as the people of God, as citizens of the kingdom of God, we should recognize who he is. I love this from Patrick Schreiner. He says, the story of the Bible is the story of the king and his kingdom. As Dan McCartney says, the arrival of the kingdom of God is the reinstatement of the originally intended divine order for the earth, with man properly situated as God's vice regent. Jesus is the true human, receiving, embodying, bringing, inaugurating, and fulfilling the kingdom promises. And we're going to look into this next week as we look at creation and what God intended with creation, and most specifically with creating man and woman and giving them dominion. See, Jesus did what Adam and Eve failed to do. He became the man who came to rule and reign on behalf of God, righteously, holy, perfectly, 
And that's why his kingdom is so important. So Christ is the king. But why did he come? Why did the king come to earth? Well, we would say to die for our sins, right? That's the gospel. We would say to pay for our sin debt. True. We would say to give us eternal life. And that's where we place our hope that one day we're going to get to be with him. So we get to go to heaven. That's what I was raised on. When you place your faith in Jesus, I was told, you get to be with him in heaven. Don't you want to go to heaven? And while the answer to that is yes, what difference does it make now? And that's why this topic is so important. Is it just some future thing that's going to happen? Or does it have present ramifications? See, if Christ is the king right here, right now, if Christ was the king when he was born, we come seeking the king. If he was king when he died, behold, the king of the Jews, that means he's still the king. He's my king. He's your king. And here's what he came to do as king. He came to be king. Not some time in the future, but right here, right now, with citizens who recognize him as king. He came to rule and reign. Is he ruling and reigning over the lives of every man and woman who lives on this planet? Obviously not. But he should rule over my life and your life if you're a believer in Christ. He came to defeat the enemies of God. He did it while he performed his earthly ministry. He cast out demons. He refuted the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He, he came to defeat the enemies of God and he's still doing it today. He also came to establish an earthly kingdom. When? Is it here and now? Is Christ's kingdom ruling this world? Well, the answer is no. And all you have to do is turn on the news, turn on your computer, surf the internet, and you will see that he is not ruling and reigning in the lives of most of the world today. So this must be something that's going to happen in the future. But yet, we are citizens of that kingdom, as we'll discover in the weeks ahead. See, this is all part of the good news of Jesus Christ. Again, Mark opens up his words, or his gospel, with these words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Before he even writes another word, he establishes the context for everything that he's going to say, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the rest of what he writes is about that gospel, and it contains reference after reference about the kingdom. See, it could just as easily be translated this way. The good news of Jesus, the messianic king. That's the good news. Jesus is king. And here's the problem you and I have. We forget this. And when everything starts to go south and we begin to see what's happening in the world, whether it's in Afghanistan or it's in Louisiana right now, we begin to panic and is, is, is Christ on his throne? Is everything okay or is God out of control? Is his son not really ruling and reigning? And we have to remember that the good news is that Jesus truly is the messianic king. And Mark's going to spend the rest of his time describing the Messiah of Israel. But not just of Israel, of you and I. As followers of Jesus Christ, that's the good news. That's the good news that Mark unpacks. That's the good news that Matthew and Luke and John unpack. It's the good news or the gospel of the kingdom. See, what's interesting is that Mark isn't just interested in the fact of Jesus' kingship, but also in the question of these three things. His identity. In other words, is Jesus the king or not? His modality 
If he is, what kind of king is he? And his functionality. If he's the king, what's he going to do? See, Nicholas Perrin helps us understand that Mark, as he unpacks the gospel story of Jesus, the good news about the king, the Messiah, he's helping us to understand these three important facts. Who is he? What's the identity of this man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth? What's the reality of his kingship? And what's the nature of that reign, the modality? How is he going to rule and reign? Will it look like what the Jews expect, what the disciples hope for? Or is it going to have a different modality? And what's the functionality? What's the impact of his power? Is it going to take the form of an earthly kingdom with soldiers and a government and power on this earth? Or is it going to take a different kind of form? That's what the Gospels help us to unpack and understand. And that's what we're going to do for the next 11 weeks is try to get our hearts and our heads around this idea of the king and his kingdom. Why does it even matter? I love this from John Bright's book, The Kingdom of God. To the Old Testament, the fruition and victory of God's kingdom was always a future, indeed an eschatological, end times thing, and must always be spoken of in a future tense. In other words, if you read the Old Testament and the prophets, it's always out there in the future. They're waiting on the kingdom, hoping for the kingdom, anticipating the kingdom, longing for the kingdom. But he goes on and says, but in the New Testament, we encounter a change. The tense is a resounding present indicative. The kingdom is here. It's come. And that's a very new thing indeed. This was radically changing everything from an Old Testament future perspective to a present reality. The good news that God has acted and he's done it through his son. That's why Jesus came preaching, preaching the kingdom of God, but not in a vacuum, he was preaching it and addressing a long-standing expectation of all the Jews, including the 12 disciples. They were hoping for, longing for the coming of the king and his kingdom. And yet we, as modern-day Christians, tend to read the Gospels through what? The writings of Paul. We, we read them with a Western mindset, and we don't understand all this talk about kings and kingship because we don't have a king. We don't live under a king. And so it's a little hard for us to embrace Jesus as sovereign, but it's much more easy for us to embrace him as savior. But you can't separate those two. You should never separate those two because if we do, we fail to understand his kingship. Remember he said, this is the purpose for which I came. I came to rule. I came to reign. And we can't turn this into heaven. It's a future thing. It's all out there in the future. It's where we go when we die. It's, it's what we're waiting for. See, the Jews had a different understanding of the kingdom than we do. And they were basing it on all those years of prophetic teachings that they went back to constantly. We have this from Obadiah. Those who have been rescued will go up to Mount Zion in Jerusalem to rule over the mountains of Edom and the Lord himself will be king. We have it from Zephaniah. For the Lord will remove his hand of judgment and will disperse the armies of your enemy. And the Lord himself, the king of Israel, will live among you and your troubles will be over. We have it also from Daniel chapter 7. I saw someone like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient One and was led into His presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world. He goes on and says, His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. See, this is what the Old Testament prophets spoke of 
that the Jews were still waiting for. So when Jesus shows up in the scene and starts talking about his kingdom, that's the lens through which, which they saw it, how they heard it. And it raised their expectations. They wanted a warrior king. They wanted a king who would be a Jew and revitalize their kingdom. They wanted a great emancipator and someone who would deliver them from Roman rule. They wanted an all-powerful, all-righteous ruler like David used to be. See, they had expectations. They had hopes. And they had hope that it would last forever. That's why the disciples were so sad when Jesus began to talk about dying. Because that blew a hole in their whole concept. But see, Jesus knew something they didn't know. He knew the full ramifications of the kingdom and all that it entailed. I love this from 2 Samuel. David has promised that God will give him an everlasting kingdom through one of his sons. He says, I will establish your throne, your kingdom, and your throne will last forever. How was he going to do that? Didn't do it through Solomon. Didn't do it through any of his other descendants until Jesus Christ showed up, the son of David, a descendant of David. See, God was going to fulfill the promise of the kingdom through his son, Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns, for I was sent for this purpose. That's why he came. So what do we do with this? We're at week one of an 11-week series, and we're just dipping our toe into the shallow end of the pool. And by week 11, we're going to be weighing over our heads. But hopefully it will all make sense as we move from week to week. And so next week, we're going to look at the king of creation. We're going to go back to Genesis chapter 1 and establish how God is and was the king. But what happened? What happened? Why did we need Jesus to come as king? Because mankind rejected the one true king. So that'll be next week. But for this week, here's, here's some thoughts for you to discuss, either with a friend, with your wife. Just think about on your own. First of all, when you think of a king, what comes to mind? And how do those ideas influence your concept of Jesus? See, we've got to get rid of some of our misconceptions about kingship because they will really cloud our thinking. Why do you think the church has been so willing to talk about Jesus as our Savior, but not as our sovereign? What's wrong with that picture? Why is it so hard for us to step back and see Jesus as king? Then finally, what did Jesus mean when he told us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Why is that so important? And what does it mean when we pray that to God? What are we really asking him to do? Because that will be key to understanding what we expect to receive. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this uh, study. I pray that it would make sense as we move through it, that you would open our ears and our eyes to see and hear what you would have us to receive from you about this, that, Father, it would not be academic, it would not be just a bunch of doctrine that we study, but that it would become real, that we could understand what it means that Jesus is king and we would allow him to be king of our lives even during this time when everyone around us is worshiping a different king, a king other than Jesus. May we stay faithful to the one true king. Lord, we love you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you next week.